Welcome everyone. Today we're joined by Bridget Davis, a doctoral candidate at the Crown Family School of Social Work, Policy and Practice at the University of Chicago, as well as a two-time Point Foundation Scholar and Institute of Education Sciences pre-doctoral fellow. This fall, the fall of 2022, she will begin the next phase of her career as an assistant professor at the University of Massachusetts Amherst School of Public Policy. Her fields of interest include anti-poverty policy and implementation, nonprofit organizations, social inequality, and administrative burdens. Her current project investigates the role of organizational policies and practices in reproducing or challenging racial and economic inequality among youth as they navigate the transition to adulthood. Prior to her graduate studies, Bridget worked for 11 years in public schools and nonprofits in Atlanta and Chicago, teaching, coaching teachers, managing instructional outcomes, and serving as Dean of College Access and Persistence. Her research is extremely relevant to CTB's work, expanding an accessible, affordable, and academically rigorous college education to more students in the United States. So we are thrilled to have her here today. So welcome, Bridget. Thanks so much. I'm so happy to be here. All right, so just to start off, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background and your road to conducting academic research? Sure, thanks. So I'd say in terms of my background, there's a few relevant pieces of kind of what brought me to, to conducting academic research. So first, I'd say I'm a first-generation college graduate. I grew up in a town of 325 people in a rural community, and I grew up with the expectation of going to college and with the narrative of understanding that my parents missed out on such an opportunity. And so I think that was kind of a first grounding path. Second, I went to college and was able to do so because my, my father retired from a meatpacking plant early with good benefits and took a job as a custodian at a local liberal arts college that was actually still providing tuition exchange and tuition remission policies for even their custodians and, and their food staff workers, et cetera. So that allowed me and, and you know, belonging to a working class family to attend a liberal arts college um, free of tuition. And that was right a huge advantage that, uh, that has really informed kind of everything from there. And when I got to college and realized what that opportunity afforded me and the opportunities that weren't afforded to others, that set out my path to joining Teach for America. And I taught in Atlanta public schools, middle school, then moved to Chicago and taught high school. And in between all of those kind of moved back and forth between uh, leading educators and coaching them um, and supporting them, making really meaningful academic gains with their students and also with being on the front line on the ground with students as a teacher. And so I think after watching, you know, middle schoolers and then high schoolers and then helping students then transition and attempt to go to college and, and watching my, this, my former students become college age, and even afterwards go into the workplace, it was very clear to me that there were questions and, and anger and emotions that were driving my work that really couldn't be answered anymore in, in schools specifically. There were things that I saw our students struggling with that seemed completely unrelated to what I could work on in a K through 12 school. Um, and that drove me to, to pursuing both a master's and PhD at the Crown School of Social Welfare and Public Policy. And the subject of your dissertation, this, this most recent research you've conducted, focuses specifically on higher education. So what drew you, like you have experience in K-12 schools, um, you know, and you had obviously at the Crown School access to people doing work in a lot of different social policy areas. What drew you to higher ed and what, what about you personally may have pushed you in that direction? Yeah, so I think there's two things. So I'm really interested in that transition to adulthood period, right? But basically transition from high school into our, 
you know, other institutions of work, family, et cetera. Um, and so um, I think many people don't think about it this way, but um, the Pell Grant is actually the uh, second most used means tested poverty program among young people ages 19 to 26. So in that transition to adulthood like stage. Um, the only the only means tested poverty program that's our social program that's used more is Medicare. Um, and so when you think about that and you think about 7 million young people ages 19 to 26 um, using the Pell Grant as a way to not only have social stability but social mobility be possible, that's a social policy, right? That's impacting most young adults. In addition to that, just our data nationwide is that like 90%, um, and this is nationwide and in the city of Chicago, 90% of young people are, are expecting to go to college and to graduate from college. And near that, uh, their parents also want that for their children. And yet that's just not the case in terms of how many people enroll and finish college and that, and you know about the disparities. And so I think for me, being really interested in kind of the way the transition to adulthood used to be um, an area for social mobility, for leaving your family and then, it, and then kind of out achieving them. Um, I think our young people today face a situation where the transition to, to adulthood becomes even more precarious. I think my background really informs this focus in a couple of ways. I think first, I had a really unique experience. So first of all, many working class students don't actually qualify for the Pell because the Pell, the Pell grant limits in terms of how much you have to make are, are very incredibly low in order to be eligible for any amount of the Pell. And the Pell was worth its highest amount, real dollars in 1976 and hasn't grown since then. And so I actually was a working class student who experienced kind of the odd experience of having a way to get college paid for that was right via my dad's job. And that means two things. So first, I did receive this interesting aid. The second is that that aid came with some burdens, but like I had to do certain paperwork things and do, do that, but it wasn't need-based financial aid in the same way that most of our low-income students and first-gen students face in this country. The second is that along, and then I think this is a really, um, a really nuanced point, but my aid, because it normally only came with professor's children, my aid I received in college, that tuition remission, brought with it a set of assumptions by the workers on college campus, by college campus, that actually were with positive attributions, right? My, when, I, when professors knew I was on tuition exchange or the financial aid office knew I was on tuition exchange, their assumption was I was a professor's child. And so I actually had the, the opposite experience of what happens for many of our students in financial aid offices, which is assumptions of, of poverty and, and all sorts of other kind of challenges that go with that. I had the opposite. And I, and I had really assumptions made about me that weren't true about my access and information about how to navigate college. Um, and so those, I think, really give me insights, both like insider outsider, insights into the experience our young people have as they navigate higher ed. So zooming out a bit and just looking at the current state of higher education writ large, tell us a little bit about what's going on in higher education. Why did you particularly see a need for research or reform in this area? The, to me, the current state of higher ed is just one of, of incredible inequity. We have sorting at multiple stages of the process in terms of both access to institutions and then access within institutions by both race and SES. I also think the current state of higher education is really um, one of organizational complexity. Institutions are highly complex and, and different divisions of institutions have different missions and ways of thinking about what they're up to. 
and they really don't aren't really in conversation with each other. You know, whether we're talking about the financial aid office, the admissions office, you know, those offices that support low low income and first gen students, um, the academic kind of part of of school. It's just a very complex organization. And then you have on top of that what financing college looks like right now. And then I think you have the social kind of stuff around college, which is that you have um, an institution where opportunities are able to be hoarded right, by um, upper middle class and, and wealthy students, both in terms of getting into the best institutions, but then eating up those resources as soon as they're on campus as well. Um, so I think to me, the state of higher, higher education is, is just one of incredible inequities. And I think we've kind of accepted it because it has the veil of meritocracy. And so I think that there's a huge need for research and reform in that area that really digs into the mechanisms and the changeable aspects of what's going on in higher ed that can offer explanations that are novel and true pieces of reform. And I think we focus so long as we've talked about the discussion of higher ed and college access and success and college and equity in college completion. Uh, I think much of that conversation has constantly gone back to preparation. And a lot of the pressure has actually been on K through 12 schools uh, in terms of equitable preparation for college instead of really examining what's happening on campuses and how is that contributing to the inequity that, that, that's occurring there. So I think the work that you've done is very kind of geographically, contextually important. So you've spent the last decade plus in Chicago, first as a practitioner, as you mentioned, uh, with the Noble Network of Charter Schools and then as a graduate student and researcher at, at UChicago at the Crown School. So what role does the city of Chicago itself play in your research? And you have this recent paper from 2020 called Matchmakers, Employing External Partners to Close the College Attainment Gap. It really acknowledges this Chicago focus very well. So maybe you can use that as, as an example as you kind of talk through how geographic context informs your work. Yeah, so I think there's something really I think this is, um, it's obvious, but yet we don't, we don't really talk about it enough, but Chicago is really a unique and ideal place to study higher ed for a couple of reasons. And the, the first main reason is because in the early thousands, uh, when Melissa Roderick and her team at the University of Chicago and the Consortium um, for School Research were working on understanding Chicago's, like both their the challenges of high school and what was helping with helping with high school graduation, but then started to look at what happened when their students left high school and went to college. Um, Chicago became the first city and the first public school district in the country to actually link their CPS, their CPS student data, student by student, to the, uh, the National Student Clearinghouse. And so in that way, right, in the early thousands, when the consortium and Melissa Roderick and CPS entered that data sharing agreement, what that meant is we'd have, we have almost 20 years worth of college data that actually links every CPS student to whatever college they attended, community college or otherwise, four-year college, and their persistence in college over time. And so that really makes for a, a really unique setup in Chicago, um, not only in terms of data access, but what it also means is that Chicago became home to kind of a proliferation of nonprofit organizations that stepped in to support that college access. 
And you might say, well, like, why? Why does that data matter so much? Well, the data matters so much both because if you know about nonprofits that they constantly, right, both have to um, secure resources and also um, make a case for their legitimacy and for the impact that they're achieving. Well, if you have that public data, you not only have the data on your students available and you have an infrastructure for accessing it, uh, but you also have a comparison group. And that becomes really important in sharing your, your impact with your donors and with the city and with Chicago Public Schools if you're getting any kind of contracts. And so Chicago has been the home, right, not only to early insights because of that data about which colleges serve our students best and what the issues are with FAFSA, with, um, with undermatch, with college fit, with um, too many students attending community college when they actually are qualified for four-year public institutions that are equally as affordable. Like essentially Chicago then became this rich place where we have not only riches of data, but then riches of kind of organizations that are approaching these, these challenges from a number of different areas and with a specific focus on equity. And so I think that, that the role it plays in my research is one, I think really seeking to understand and use Chicago and its outlierness in that way to help understand some of the more nuanced, like the next steps in college research, um, because there's some things, there's data that like nationally we have, data that we have that nationally doesn't really exist in the same way. Um, and the second is that um, because of that nonprofit, that rich field of nonprofits, and a, I think we also have this interesting way to say, great, here's how nonprofits have helped support this transition, or here's how they're seeking to help. Um, what's that doing or not doing in terms, of, in terms of supporting student access and completion in college? And what can that actually tell us, if you're inside of those organizations, what can that actually tell us about um, the state of higher ed? Uh, because we get not only then student insights and student data, but you get worker insights and organizational data as well. All right, let's talk about your broader approach to research. So at the UChicago Crown School is kind of, I think, a uniquely interdisciplinary scholarly space. And your research in particular, I think, is very unique. So, so tell us about how you approach conducting research. What distinguishes your work from other research maybe on, on higher education? And um, you have this great recent paper called I Hope I Make It, Alternative School Students Attendance and the Need for an Expanded Accountability. And this is actually focused more on K-12, but I think it does a really nice job of grounding how you particularly approach conducting research. Yeah, so I'd say thank you so much, and, and thank you for acknowledging that paper, I think, which is you know, co-authored with Ewing um, and Sam Goose, who are both wonderful scholars as well. I, I think the, the first piece is that I think, um, I would say that I really, in terms of the evidence base and in terms of thinking about um, college access and completion, so much of that conversation has really been um, driven by assumptions and notions of capital, right? Whether it's human capital in the form of students being prepared for college and their grades, their AP, you know, AP and college courses, their test scores, et cetera, to like social capital, like knowing how to navigate the um, college admissions process and knowing how to select colleges that are best for them to actual like right, financial capital. And, and sometimes people even talk about cultural capital and there's some people proposing new ideas about like a kind of practical capital or bureaucratic capital. Like there's all kinds of capital has really driven that kind of conversation and ideas about what we can pour into students to make them more prepared to, to both get to college and then get through college. And you see these interventions happening, right, both in high school, 
um, and even before them, and then also these happening from a nonprofit base, and then you also see them happening um, as well on higher ed institutions, at higher ed institutions where offices that work with first and low income students are like, again, kind of have this idea of like pouring in more opportunities and information and support to, to support students. And so if you take that all as it is, and, and I do, um, I take that all very seriously. And yet you, we have cases now, right, where students are kind of in the best case scenario. And so I think for me, the way that I then look at research questions from there is to say, well, let's talk about students where we've done all the things, where we've poured in all the capital, where they've been a part of these interventions since even a younger age, um, where they've taken AP courses, they've gotten all sorts of coaching during high school, they've gotten a college prep environment, their family has been on board with college since eighth or ninth grade. They're getting kind of all of everything we would say accounts for these kind of gaps that quote unquote that get put out there. And I wanna get inside an out, outlier intervention and find out, well, what stops students then? What remains, right, besides these kind of explanations of capital? What's in that black box? And I think for me, right, one of the, the under uh, understudied areas that's kind of always living right alongside this experience of transitioning from a school, like a high school to, to college, is simultaneously this navigation of a means-tested poverty program that is need-based financial aid. And so I think, and that's, I think, what comes really uniquely, as you mentioned, from, from kind of Crown, right, which is we actually have a lot of research on what it means to, um, to access safety net resources and what the, the compliance issue, learning costs and compliance costs of, are of doing that, what cooling effects look like that actually make it really difficult to, to contain, like, continue getting benefits like TANF or like um, childcare uh, subsidies or like unemployment benefits, et cetera. We know how complex things, those processes are, but we somehow kind of have missed that, that the Pell Grant is one of those and the FAFSA is one of those kind of burdens. And, and I think, so I really find that holding up the uh, welfare policy and social welfare policy context right next to the fact that students are then navigating this merit-based institution that, we're, that we refer to as at the same time. Um, and so I think that's kind of the other piece of that. So my third piece of that, of, you know, if you start with the assumptions that there's, that the conversation focuses on capital, and then, but there's this other kind of um, area that we haven't really dove into as education scholars, the only way to really get at that, to what it what it feels like and means to navigate both higher ed and also this means-tested poverty program is actually to really understand students' experience on the ground. And, you know, like I said, in whether it's in this study or in this study of my dissertation or whether it's in the I Hope I Make It paper about um, students who are attending alternative schools and experiencing the interventions around their attendance, like student experience is really the piece that we don't have when you look at national data sets or district data sets, which is where we see most of this kind of conversation happening about student, frankly, student deficits is how they get usually framed, um, or challenges for districts or challenges for institutions. And so really by understanding students experience on the ground, I think you can not only get a sense of what's what's really happening, but also how students are making meaning of that to act as agents in their own own lives. And then I think the other is just that like my approach is constantly really looking for for implications that 
lead to practice and policy changes. Um, and so, you know, rarely am I seeking in my work to explain a phenomenon in a way that doesn't um, translate to workers on the ground or to um, or to policymakers thinking about broader changes that could make education more equitable. Great. So I think your most recent research is a great example of all of those different features that really define your approach to conducting research. So let's talk a little bit about that. Tell us a little bit about this most recent project, where it came from. When you think about the evidence base and kind of the personal experience that you bring to this, how does that manifest in this most recent research? So my current study, my dissertation study, um, the genesis of this research is, is very similar to what we've been talking about, but essentially the question of if we if we move forward with all the assumptions of, that, the, that the current empirical literature that tell us what caused gaps in college access and completion are real, then if we, and we, and we go forward and we trust that research, then what happens, like I said, when the students get the interventions that we think should matter most? And so what I did in the study is I ultimately um, you know, partnered with, with Noble Schools and their um, college teams to essentially identify some challenges in their own work and, and, um, and to prioritize recruiting a number of students um, to, to participate in a study that followed them from um, within like their senior year, the two weeks of their graduation through their first year of college. And so um, I worked with Noble to specifically select three high schools where they were experiencing kind of the most challenges with students um, persisting despite what their like data, meaning their like their grades, their college experiences, and their test scores look like, that we're having difficulty both in accessing really great colleges and then also attending really great colleges. And so um, those were three far south side, predominantly African-American high schools. And essentially from there, I worked with their principals and then also made a pitch to students to, to be a part of the study. And so what happened is essentially um, what I ended up doing is prioritizing average achieving students and that average, meaning it's a GPA of 2.3 to 3.2, the national average for um, black high school graduates is a 2.69. So it's right around the bell curve of that average. Um, and that, that makes up essentially the majority of black students in this country. It represents the majority of black students in the country who would attend college, that GPA realm does. And they're right in the middle in test scores as well, really centering right on that like college ready um, number for ACT and SAT. And so I followed 31 students, about 10 students from each school into their first year. And so I did my first interview with them right around high school graduation to get kind of a just an insight into who the students were and what their goals were, what they were looking forward to in college, what they were scared about, what they were nervous about, what was going on in their life, and kind of what they saw happening, what they saw for themselves happening over the next year, how they made choices about what college they would attend, um, where they were at in the matriculation process for college, all sorts of things about how their senior year was informing what they were thinking, and, and then followed them proceeded to follow them throughout, meaning I did short check-ins and then also long interviews throughout the first year of college. Um, that data was started to get collected in 2019. Um, and as you know, then that class was a class who during their first year of college then was in, the pandemic interrupted in March of 2020. So then I ended up following the students for another year. I think the experience of following those students, I think, made a couple of things really clear. First was that what 
we think of as two parts of the college, like of the college process, which is access and success, um, really have a lot more to do with each other than we know or we think of. And so I think first, like these students um, had all gotten really great college counseling, had all done, you know, half of them had done internships or summer college programs. The other half of them had worked and taken AP courses. You know, these students had kind of everything we would ever want. You know, anybody who thinks about college readiness would ever want from a low-income first-generation student to be prepared for college. And I started, like, understanding their process and looked at their data. You know, I had this administrative data as well from Noble. It was clear that not only, you know, each student had been, on average, admitted to seven colleges, those seven colleges represented, right, match, safety, and, and reach schools. Those colleges also had a mix of state colleges and, you know, other smaller broad colleges or other options here in the city that would be available via commuting. Like, kind of on every matrices, they'd gotten all the right college counseling as well. And yet, college decisions, um, even when made kind of by a matrix of best fit, were made with imperfect information. And what I mean by that is that it was very clear to me, both in what students said and then also with the data that that I was provided that students had, that like they hadn't received on average, they hadn't received financial aid awards from like four out of the colleges that they applied or that they were admitted to. So right, so they met, you know, academically and otherwise, they met the criteria to get admitted to seven schools, but they on average then right got financial aid award letters from three from three schools. Now, you might say, well, how and why does that happen? Um, how in the world is that happening? Well, first, like a number of, of institutions require some kind of verification processes if for need-based aid students um, just to even acquire an award letter. So students were really going through an entirely bureaucratic process, not, you know, they'd already done the FAFSA, they'd already submitted or linked to their IRS, um, to their tax, their parents' tax forms. Um, and yet they still had all of this paperwork to do just to even get an aid award letter to know what college would cost them. Second was that like doing those, doing that paperwork was burdensome and difficult and required, required navigating a lot of difficult conversations with their parents, but also required, had their parents trying to do really complex things like um, if you work in the gig economy, trying to figure out how to get your tax forms from multiple employers, right? Uber, Lyft, uh, Postmates, et cetera, right? So there was just a whole lot of complexity going on with just getting financial aid information. And when students were successful, it often delayed in getting the aid award letters from places that required verification. It often delayed their timing in, in decision-making. And so they would be spending all spring going back and forth, submitting these documents. And, and by the time they got an aid award letter, it meant that they had held off making a decision on where to go to college. And therefore you would think that's okay. Like Michelle Obama says national decision day is, is May 15th. And, and all of these, these students made decisions by that time. Most of them made decisions by this time of year. Um, and he's like, well, that must be fine. But as anybody who knows this process kind of knows is that like most upper middle class and high income students get admitted and get those admission letters just like the low income students do like in January or February. And because they have the financial information that they need, right, they, they can make a decision and start getting slots in colleges, make, it, make an enrollment deposit, make a housing deposit, 
select the most advantageous dorm, go ahead and attend orientation, get registered for classes in the most advantageous or lucrative majors. They can get in all the kind of support programming, summer, you know, anything that's provided, like the timing really matters in terms of in terms of accessing the best of resources on college campuses. And so there were kind of two ways in which this bureaucratic process associated with getting need-based aid really helped students up. And the first is that it did affect and in some cases deter students from attending particular colleges. So it was a way of sorting that wasn't just the academic means that we think of, sorting students from more highly selective colleges to less selective colleges who are more used to navigating um, this process with low-income students. So one was right, stratified, so it stratified students between colleges. And then the second is that it also stratified students within colleges. And so my students in the study, right, often experienced not being able to get into classes they wanted, being stuck with 8 a.m. courses, being stuck in the dorms furthest away from campus resources, being frankly in very racially segregated dorm situations because of the way that this kind of process worked not getting, you know, ideal work study jobs because you have to go through all of the enrollment process to get those. Um, so essentially just like students really ending up, even if they ended up in a college that they felt good about attending and was a good fit and ended up being fairly affordable with, with the Pell Grant and the state map grant in Illinois, really with kind of the, the short end of the stick when it came to all of the experiences of campus life. And starting off on that kind of foot, um, you know, getting stuck in a psychology class, um, when you actually right, had other interests, also led to longer term challenges when it came to academic success and investment in college over time. So I think the biggest thing I think that listeners should be thinking about and like that we should be thinking about practitioners, et cetera, when we think about the college of the context of college matriculation in Chicago, and I think just broadly is is this question of like, I think, Thus far in the literature, right, when we think about the FAFSA, the, the work on the FAFSA that's really been done and the work on the, um, on kind of the bureaucracy of that has been really around college melt with the assumption, the data being a zero one, right? And if students enroll, it's a success if, and matriculate, it's a success if students who attend, if were intending to go to college don't get these kind of bureaucratic pieces done, then they've been a, like a victim of summer melt and they, and they're not enrolled in college. And what my research really shows is like, actually, this college matriculation process is really about timing and delays and access to the best of what's on campuses. And, um, and essentially, there's a lot, a lot of other outcomes besides that zero one um, kind of variable that really matter. And students starting off college in a less advantageous position may very well be likely contributing to their long-term difficulty in college completion. So your research finds these really striking findings about the way that financial aid verification processes and things like this have short-term and long-term impacts for students. But then you add another layer to thinking about this problem when you talk about a life course perspective. So can you tell us a little bit about what, what a life course perspective is and then how that kind of amplifies the more concrete findings of your paper about the impact on students? Yeah, definitely. So a life course perspective is really understanding that there are these critical developmental time periods and they happen to associate very often with institutional transitions. If you think about oftentimes, right, pre-K gets focused as like a very big intervention. And here, right, the transition to adulthood is also one of the critical developmental time periods where, right, either where you have the opportunity for social stability or you have the opportunity for social mobility in a, a positive or negative direction. What my study shows is that the disadvantages that young people have 
financially and economically and racially in this country that they brought with them from their birth and their situation, from the situation of their family, and the complexity that exists in being a low-income person in this country. That complexity and the disadvantage really adheres to students via this paperwork, and I think really is the constituent stuff of cumulative disadvantage, the way it sticks with you. And so I think it's really important to consider because there, in this country at various points, right, there have been many institutions that support that transition to adulthood, whether it was a, we think of these as outmoded kind of things, but whether it was marriage that happened pretty early or parenthood that happened pretty early or jobs and unionized jobs and jobs with like all sorts of stable hours and stable coworkers. And when you think about now, what development exists to support, right? A, College and higher ed are the modal outcomes for young people in this country at the transition to adulthood. And so I think it's really important to not just think about college as academic pursuit, but it is truly a, a developmental holding place. And so therefore, whether it promotes social equity or not, it becomes critically important because there will be other disadvantages, whether it's debt, lack of employment options, et cetera, over the life course that will continue to really matter. Up to this point, when talking about your research, we've talked primarily about the institutions like the, the colleges themselves, but there's another party involved, and that's nonprofit organizations that that's kind of supplement student supports that are actually outside of the colleges. What role did you find that nonprofit organizations played in this interaction between students, institutions, financial aid verification, and what are the key takeaways there? Yeah, so I, I think... In this case, right, non, the nonprofit inter, uh, organization is actually, you know, a college coaching program that students are provided with as they transition to college. And those exist in a number of different kinds of nonprofits as varied, you know, it's from the posse organization, which we can think of in very elite institutions, all the way to like one million degrees that, that works with um, Chicago um, like community or city colleges in Chicago, the community colleges here. And so I think the, what I found in the study is that those college coaches that were supporting matriculation and supporting college success played a huge role in, in actually minimizing some of these burdens. First of all, none of the students were victims of summer melt. Every single student that intended to enroll in college, which was 30 out of 31 of these students, enrolled in college the following fall with different degrees, like I said, of, of kind of these delays and challenges, but they all did. So that's like a, that's a huge success. A second, like when we watched in the pandemic, um, as I watched what was happening with students, these nonprofits played a huge role in just like emergency support, whether that was helping students get additional supplies, helping students get home from college, helping students store things in the place that they were living on campus affordably. I mean, all sorts of things that, that they were doing. So I'd say nonprofits play this huge role. And I think that role is expanding across the country. And I think with all different kinds of interventions. And they just also meant in the case of the program that I was studying, right? These were three African-American coaches who were all um, first-gen college graduates themselves who had dedicated their time to really um, serving as kind of kind of in a certain way near peers in their coaching, right? They could, they could understand what students were going through. They could relate and they could try to coach and, and support them and mentor them through, through challenges. So I would not want to ever minimize that support. But what I thought, you know, when you say coaching and you're talking about college, what most people, and there are important people here that are, as an audience, what most people assume is it's like, academic coaching, it's coaching on like how to write emails to your professor or, you know, it's, it's filling in these gaps of capital. 
But that's actually not what I saw coaches mostly doing. Mostly coaches were supporting navigating these bureaucratic systems of making sure that need-based aid was in place and that the student could access just basic material supports on campus. And so when you think about that, I think there's kind of two major findings. So in one way, nonprofits like inadvertently then these coaches are inadvertently just kind of shepherding students one by one through this process that actually as a policy process doesn't have any reason to exist. These burdens don't have to be there. They are artificially in, you know, in place. And, and to me, nonprofits have a real role in seeing, and number one, in seeing that. Number two, in accurately representing the work that coaches are doing to important people like funders, news organizations, the broader kind of field of folks working on higher ed equity. And second, I think the other issue is that like, it's, it's not feasible or in the long-term efficacious to just one by one shepherd students through this process. Um, at the end of the day then, right, the gap between a student who's in one of these programs and not in these programs is not actually much about what the organization's providing, except that it's providing you know, help support getting through these loops, these, these hoops. And so I think in that way, right, it's perpetuating broader forms of inequality. We can talk about kind of why or how I think that could change and how nonprofits' roles could change. Um, but I think one of the biggest things is, is the way that nonprofits um, measure impact. And right now, their, their data doesn't incentivize them to keep track of big structural issues and students get accessing um, the support they need. So I think that's a really nice segue to thinking about the implications of your research. So you, you noted earlier that this is one of the key features of the approach that you take, which is really focusing on not just answering a question, but really thinking about the implications for practice and policy change. So what do you see the implications of your research as for three main groups? So you just touched on nonprofit organizations, but then thinking about policymakers and then thinking about institutional leaders within higher education as well. Yeah, so I think these two are really, the policymakers and institutional leaders are, I think, really tied around this issue for a couple of reasons. First is because right now, there's no reason, we use the FAFSA as a way for students to access, apply for and access student aid. Um, but there's really no reason that that application would be necessary. Uh, we have the, the correct tax information, right, based on just IRS tax filing, we have the information that we would need to basically send out a letter when any student turns 16, or, you know, we could decide the age, um, but essentially send a letter to every family to say, you're eligible for X amount of need-based aid that comes from state and federal grants. The only reason to make students apply is like to create kind of a hurdle. So I think from a federal level, we really need to understand that. And we, we do make students still at the FAFSA right now. And right now there is a federal FAFSA verification process that's on pause for this year. And that's a good start is actually putting things on pause for this year, given the all of the kind of financial turbulence uh, due to the pandemic. But so, but right, I would advocate for that pause to be permanent. Um, essentially, the, the federal government wouldn't also require another level of verification. But the second, which goes to institutional leaders in higher ed is, is, and why it's so related is that actually the federal government isn't the only source of verification. So institutions can decide who outside of the federal verification process and students being polled or flagged for verification via that way, institutions can decide who how and when they flag students for verification. Um, and that means that some institutions 
flag every single student receiving need-based aid for verification, and it means others, right, only have certain kind of quote-unquote triggering processes. But if you look at any financial aid verification like page and you look at the forms that are provided, and, and I'll just have you know, like I said, federal verification was on pause. That is not the case for institutional verification. So although the, right, the feds, like although the DOE is not flagging anyone for verification, institutions still are. And, um, and institutions, like I said, can choose how, when, and who to flag. And so when you look at these lists of forms, and for many of the universities and colleges, there's a, a set of you know, six to eight to even more different kinds of verification. And when you look at the conditions that, um, that would flag a verification and require a verification form, many low-income students could, quali could end up having to, to fill out multiple forms of verification. Um, and I'll just share that when I talked before about like the complexity of, of low-income people's lives in this current economy, when it meets the kind of simplicity of assumptions of who is family and what is work of an that an institution makes, um, right? Students could have to fill out a form for verification of another dependent in their household that's not a spouse or a sibling. Meaning that like if their parent is taking care of a niece or nephew, or grandchild in the household, they, there's an entirely other form for that. Um, there's additionally like entire forms for guardianship, right? Where, where young people are raised by a grandparent or an aunt or uncle instead of their parent. Um, and you can, you know, anybody who's worked with low-income or first-gen students or is one themselves knows that these, these conditions are incredibly common. And for anybody that's, that's not kind of middle class or upper class in, the, in this country. Um, so I would say like the thing for institution, institutional leaders in higher ed is to understand that the choices they make that are normative assumptions about families and about income streams create a huge set of barriers for the low income students that most need the resources that they're gonna have on campus. And just because you actually successfully enroll low-income first-gen students of color doesn't mean actually that you've, your process has, has been equitable or that those students will still access all your resources on campus. But because, right, these two sides of the institution, right, the access side and the success side aren't always in conversation, I don't think that they, we have an accurate sense of that. So I'd say for the implications are, are incredibly clear that these bureaucratic loopholes need to be closed. And they're not even loopholes, really. They're, they're bureaucratic hurdles and challenges. Like they need to be, there's no reason for them to exist, except that it minimizes access on campus um, and perpetuates the kind of inequity that we would want to see end. So I think your research represents both in terms of the, the quality and the, the thoughtfulness of the research but also the, the really utility of the implications that you draw out represents a really significant contribution to research in, in this area. So thinking ahead, based on this, this initial you know, contribution that you've made here, how would you like to see this built on? Either research that you're interested in following up on or maybe that you think others should pursue? Yeah, thank you, first of all, for, for recognizing um, the contribution. And I think the areas that I'd really like to see followed up on is, I think there's a, a couple of key things that need to happen. And I think, and I want to say need to happen for, I think, a couple of reasons, because there are certain people that will be compelled by the depth and, uh, and quality of this, like, longitudinal qualitative project. And there, there are other folks that will want to see large numbers that kind of vet this out and prove it to be also um, 
more generalizable. And, and the other is that we also need to know the conditions under which this phenomenon does and doesn't occur. And so I'd say first is I would really love to see, and I've talked to some folks that are, are more, much more sophisticated quantitative analysts than myself about running a large study with at least two large state universities where we not only actually organize the administrative data in order to look at this timing issue, timing of enrollment, um, but also would be able to do some of the um, social network sequencing to be able to show the effect that it has on campus when students, so timing is one piece and then the, and then the second would be, okay, so therefore we look at the timing, then we look at whose students' networks are um, based on their courses, their dorms, et cetera. So you can actually see the process outcomes happening in, in this too, right? So that students, we can see how students, peer groups, the kind of professors they have access to, whether they're tenure track or not, the kind of majors that they have access to, whether that actually plays out in this stratified way um, and how it does. Um, and I think that would be incredible to have large amounts of data that, that show that. I think the second is is actually understanding the other side of this. So I think I would love to see, and I, I've actually considered, and, and it, we'll see if it happens, but I, I would love to see a next step as being also um, doing some ethnographic work inside of the financial aid office and with admissions to really understand what's happening on the admissions and, and financial aid side and how are financial aid folks understanding their role in executing these verification processes um, and what's their understanding of the reasons that students aren't making it through these hoops and and what's the rationalization that's happening you know I'm, I'm just projecting here but like what are some of the rationalizations as to, as to why and how students aren't completing these that are kind of acceptable answers to institutions and I'd say those are kind of two of the big areas that I'm I'm thinking about as kind of next studies I mean I also just think a really interesting question is just a very clear and clean survey of financial aid offices from this year in terms of if they if they flagged students for verification despite federal um, aid verification not being required and why because uh, I think the the general assumption has always been that that institutions take that intermediary step because they assume that they could have be accountable to the top-down mandate that's coming from the state. And with that absent, why are they still pulling students for verification? And like, what institutional purpose does that serve? So those are kind of the three interesting things that I think could be answered next that really come from this set of findings. So I think those exciting research directions are, are a great place to, to close. You can hear more from Bridget at the recording of our panel. She'll present a presentation on her research and also there'll be an interactive panel discussion following that. So I encourage you to tune in. But before we go, Bridget, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you so much. It's such a great opportunity to get to speak to your audience. I appreciate it.